With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Neil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest today is Sanjay Ravel, a James Beard award-winning filmmaker who directed the documentary Food Chains, which chronicled the battle of a small group of indigenous farm workers in Florida against the largest agribusiness conglomerates in the world. Food Chains was produced by Sanjay with Eva Longoria and Eric Schlosser and narrated by Forrest Whitaker. Sanjay also produced and directed the critically acclaimed film 3100 Run and Become, a documentary about why people run with portraits of runners and what motivates them. The plot centers on a 3100-mile race in New York City and the film captures the esoteric, spiritual side of running. Sanjay's latest documentary called Gather portrays the growing movement amongst Native Americans to reclaim their spiritual, political, and cultural identities through food sovereignty while battling the trauma of centuries of genocide. The actor Jason Momoa executive produced the film. The best way I can sum up this episode is that it illustrates the complexities involved in our food system through a broad lens. I say this because often when people talk about the future of food these days, the conversation tends to narrowly focus on trends like vertical farming or alternative proteins. But the food industry isn't so simple, and conversations about how to build a more sustainable, equitable, and resilient food system need to acknowledge the interconnected issues at play. It is time for us to reframe the conversation and acknowledge that it is impossible to talk about the future of food without talking about how food is produced, distributed, and consumed, which leads to a conversation about farming and agriculture, which inevitably brings up questions about the impact on the environment and on farm workers who harvest and process our food which then leads to a discussion about worker conditions, immigration, inequality, and as you follow the food from the farm to the table, you realize it touches upon issues as far-ranging as history and culture to politics and economics. That's all I'm going to say for now. I hope you enjoy this episode. Sanjay Ravel, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. I'm happy to be here, Neil. Thank you for having me. 
So we can have this really broad conversation today, and that is my goal. Um, and it, the the challenge is going to be how to keep it um, expansive enough, but yet focus on some of the real issues that you've brought to light in your recent documentary, Gather. So we'll see where this goes. But why don't we kind of go back and start by talking about what got you interested in food and how the food system works? Well, you know, my even though I've, I've made two food films now, uh, the first was Food Chains in 2014 about migrant farm labor. And then I just released a film called Gather, uh, that looks at Native American food systems and the effects of colonization and genocide on those food systems. I don't think of myself as a foodie, and I don't think of myself as a food filmmaker. It's it's something I'm sure I'll admit at some stage, because I did grow up in an agricultural family. I grew up in California. Uh, we immigrated from Gujarat. My dad actually had done his PhD in plant genetics in the US and ended up becoming a plant breeder. So even though I lived in an urban area, Oakland, I spent summers on tomato farms in the Central Valley of California. I spent another 12, 13 years after college working on human rights issues and gradually got pushed towards agriculture and land rights because so few people in the space had any real background in agricultural production. And so I found myself doing work with smallholders, with village cooperatives, not, not from a uh, necessarily a technical standpoint, but really from a, a development and, and human rights standpoint. Well, that's interesting. And your first documentary, can you talk a little bit about food chains? I know that in itself, um, we could probably spend an hour on, but I do want to touch on it for a bit. Well, you know, my, my, my framing was really affected by an Indian spiritual teacher named Sri Chinmoy. Sri Chinmoy was Bengali. He was raised in an ashram in South India, the Sri Arbindo Ashram. But he moved to New York City in the mid-60s. And after graduating with a, a, a degree in, I don't know, I forget what it was, neurobiology, in 1996, I decided to kind of pursue the next phase of my education rather than it being a classic Western institution. I wanted it to be via a classic Eastern institution. You know, in our, in our, in our part of the world, wisdom doesn't come from books. Wisdom comes from understanding the framework for experiencing things. And a lot of that framework is taught directly from elders, from teachers, from gurus, people that have had that direct experience themselves. In many cases, that direct experience they've had took 15, 20, 50 years, much longer than a Western institutional education. So there's a long way to say that, you know, he helped me understand the world in terms of people, in terms of humanistic ideas, in terms of connectivity through gratitude, the concept of, of oneness, shared goals, what peace actually means, not just from um, a democratic standpoint, not just from a security standpoint. It's the old adage that peace isn't the absence of war. Peace is the presence of love, harmony, oneness. And so when I got into filmmaking, um, having spent at that time, at that point, about 15 years in human rights work in about 40 countries, I came at subjects trying to understand 
how ideas need to be reframed on a person-to-person level. So food chains, to answer your question, is about the supply chain. It's about the grocery industry, these massive corporations that do 10 times more gross dollar revenue in a year than Goldman Sachs, than even Google. Like Walmart, for example, three or four years ago, generated $360 billion in revenue just from its grocery. Google, three or four years ago, generated about $30 billion globally. Of course, tech profits are bigger, but there's different issues economically at stake when you're dealing with supply chains. And this is kind of like an earlier point that, that, that you've made. You know, we look at the food system as something monolithic. And the key word to learn for your audience, who if they don't know already, is monopsonistic. <laughs> Monopolies are when corporations control 100% of the flow of a product to the consumer. A monopsony is when a corporation controls so much of the supply chain that it has dictated the entire way the supply chain operates. Now, you don't need to have 100% control over a supply chain. And the case study is Walmart. In the 80s, it got into the food system. It set the philosophy of buying in super large quantities and selling at super low prices to consumers, razor thin margins, pennies on the dollar, But if you were a farmer and you wanted to sell to Walmart, you had to consolidate. You had to get big or go home. Now, Walmart only controls about 30% of the entire grocery industry, but other grocery stores had to change overnight if they wanted to supply food at the same price Walmart did. And when they changed that structure, that essentially forced the entire farming industry to conform to these gigantic orders. Now, food chains looks at that reality from the standpoint of farm workers, from the people at the base of that supply chain. And it's equally as applicable to grocery store workers, to meatpacking workers, to low wage workers that measure in the U.S. in the tens of millions that work in the food industry, literally for minimum wage or less. Um, we looked at it that way. And the point for me was to show that the food system is not going to be changed by, by somebody buying organic, by somebody wanting to put something healthier into their bellies. It's a very selfish, very simplistic viewpoint. When people's lives are better up and down the food chain, individual consumers actually bear less cost. I mean, right now we might be paying pennies mm-hmm. for produce, but we're effectively paying to cover the tracks of corporations who are making tens of billions of dollars. And so I wanted to reframe the food system focus from this like foodie um, look at crops, look at ingredients, you know, silver bullets, certain diets that can change the entire world to looking at the crux of things. It's much harder to become a better person than it is to spend your dollars differently. And that's the heart of the message of the farm workers and food chains. And that's kind of been the heart of the, the, the work I've been trying to do. Really well said. There's so much in there um, I, could, I could tackle. But the thing that stood out for me is, how did it get this way? 
uh, in the work that you've done? What, what have you gathered about what led to this point? And secondly, what is the way out of it if it isn't individual consumer choices, if it isn't single products that can uh, disrupt certain parts of the industry or parts of the supply chain? And maybe this is too big a question or too big two part question, but let's start with the with the with the birth of inefficient of efficiencies that have led to this. And secondly, what's the way out? I mean, so right now we're in a technological revolution um, that probably started, you know, 40, 50 years ago. But from the late 1870s to the mid 1960s, we were in an industrial revolution. Prior to 1870, we're looking at like 1200, 1300 AD until 1870, we were in a space where food calories took on extractive value. Now, prior to the 1200s, 1300s, you couldn't really store food except through salt. And with shipping technology, people realized that there were parts of the world that they'd gotten brief hints about uh, through the Silk Road and the spice trade that had certain types of plants that could extend the life of food. And that was the beginning of the supply chain. If you had those spices, you could ship food to different markets, to non-local markets, to markets where maybe the value of that food was greater than the area in which you lived and grew your food geographically. And so thus began the extractive nature of calorie harvesting. And of course, this precipitated, you know, the, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the British galleons trying to find, and the Dutch galleons eventually finding the spice islands of Indonesia that were conquered through horrific force where, you know, through manifest destiny and the kind of approval of the Vatican, you know, these nation states started corporations that would destroy civilizations for these spices, for these commodities. This became hypercharged in the early 1600s. The, uh, the British kind of to the game. The Spanish had already really established colonies in the Western hemisphere, um, primarily looking for resources like gold, um, things that were beneath the ground. The Anglo colonizers realized that the value of North America was in its topsoil. And they noticed that native people on Turtle Island, North America, had a very intricate, very, very refined scientific farming system that North America was not wild in any way, shape or form. So one of the first things that the British military and subsequently British citizens did was steal native farms by force and monocrop them to grow cash crops, things like cotton, things like tobacco, equivalent of tea, equivalent the equivalent of spices, the way to extract topsoil value, ship that value in water and carbon to other markets to generate fabulous amounts of wealth. Now, it wasn't really until the, the late 1800s where through storage, through manufacturing of ice, that you could actually ship fresh market goods long distances, but the commodification of vegetables had already begun. I mean, our part of the world, this was shocking to me, our part of the world 
didn't have capsaicin, didn't have hot pepper until probably the late 1700s. Ireland didn't have potatoes until the mid 1600s, 1700s. Italy didn't have San Marzano tomatoes until the 1770s. Of course, those crops weren't shipped in galleons. They were shipped as genetics and they were grown in those new environments and certain things were adaptable, certain things weren't. But that's the beginning of the supply chain of genetic goods from Turtle Island to the rest of the world created the genetic roadmap for our food system now. There was no chocolate, no avocados, no, no cassava in Africa. A lot of squashes and beans weren't around the world. Potatoes, tomatoes, these things didn't exist. Now, we, we can see that the underpinnings of most of the global food system comes from these Turtle Island North American crops. But this created the understanding that calories could have a greater value in one market than another. Mm -hmm. And this was the capitalization of the food system. And, and the last bit of the question was, or the last bit of the answer is, this is the first time really in history from the 1600s, 1700s on where rich people had greater access to calories than poorer people. I mean, it, with the exception of famines and, you know, certain sort of commodification and taxation of wheat and rice, you know, there were no great inequities in terms of access to food as there are now. I mean, this is, this precipitated the rise of the supermarket system with cold storage after the industrial revolution and, and electricity. But the roots of this started, you know, at the, at the dawn of the colonization of the Western Hemisphere and subsequently the East. Bringing it back to why you focused on your recent project to the issue of food sovereignty, why was that the issue that you thought needed to be highlighted in film format? And, and maybe it wasn't a, a statement on the, on the bigger complex challenges that the food industry faces all the threats of climate change or resource depletion or overfishing or deforestation. Maybe it wasn't a commentary on that, but from an artistic standpoint, what, what are you trying to say with this new documentary beyond, of course, telling the stories of people that have not been told for years and years and years? I was really lucky to work with um, Jason Momoa on this film gather and with a, a group out of Longmont, Colorado called the First Nations Development Institute, one of the premier uh, groups, Native groups working in Indian country, which is what Native Americans refer to tribal land, um, sovereign land, reservation land as. The film follows a few characters. It follows a, um, a Native chef named Nephi Craig uh, from the White Mountain Apache tribe, a young Lakota scientist named Elsie Dubray, some fishermen, some young men on the Klamath River, on the uh, Oregon-California border on the west coast of the U.S., the film really looks at how the destruction of food systems was a tactic of genocide. We mentioned that the early colonial economy in what's now the United States was land-based. Um, in 1763, the farmers on the East Coast had monocropped the living daylights out of the topsoil and wanted to push west of the Appalachians. The British military was essential for that push westward because 
no land was free. It was all occupied and the best land was already farmed. And so American farmers needed to take that land by force. The British military said no. Um, and that was the economic, economic rationale for the movement towards a free and independent United States. But with every subsequent generation of capitalists, of immigrants, land was needed either for growing commodities like corn and wheat or for ranching. Um, and that was the case really through the, the gold rush in the 1850s. So this is just a long way to say that Native Americans were removed from their land, they were removed from their language, and they, their foods were destroyed as a way to subjugate them and to take control of their land. And Gather really focuses on the, the wonderful preservation of these food traditions uh, that again, brought us so much of our global variety. Um, these traditions still exist and they're being rejuvenated, mainly because natives live at the very end of supply chains. They get the poorest quality produce um, at the highest prices, something exacerbated by COVID-19, which shocked the supply chain to the effect that a lot of places, even urban, urban grocery stores, didn't actually get supplies because of lack of truckers, you know, lack of farm workers, healthy farm workers in the fields. The, the film Gather looks at how that system is being revitalized right now. And as a kind of greater statement, it looks at the, the, the notion that all of us come from somewhere, whether it was one generation ago or 10 generations ago, our ancestors at that stage pretty much stayed put. Now, human beings don't photosynthesize. We don't get energy from oxygen or from water. We get energy from food. And there's a converse application to that environmental reality that if you are born in an area in which you can't digest the calories, like if you're born above the Arctic Circle and your liver can't process fat in high quantities, you die. And from a Darwinian standpoint, you don't pass on your genetics. So it stands to say that our ancestors' genetics were completely specific to certain places, very specific places in the world, uh, places where their body knew how to get medicine from plants and animals, knew how to get calories from plants and animals. And that forms the strength of our genetics. Now, none of us are, any, are, are remotely close to understanding what those genetics are, because most of us are a hodgepodge of various ethnicities, therefore coming from various biomes or ecosystems around the world. But I think we can, we can all agree that the diet that we're eating is not adapted to any environment, it's not adapted to any genetics, it's adapted to economics and economics only. So if we want to begin to reframe the food system, we have to begin to decouple food from the economic reality of capitalism. But the last point to this is, you know, in, in most parts of the United States, now we see with the exception of Texas, there are a million regulations for things that are considered the, in, in the public good. Power is generally regulated. Petroleum products are generally regulated. Even milk prices are regulated. A number of states have anti-price gouging laws for, for necessary goods during natural disasters. But you could be at a Whole Foods 
get an organic tomato for $1.99 per pound, go to a Kroger or another big box store, a Costco across the street, buy maybe even the same organic tomato from the same farm, and it could cost $1.39 per pound. There's no regulation over food to the extent that these large buyers of food, whether they're fast food or grocery stores, have no sorts of regulations that require them to buy even from American farms. Um, so it's not just a, a food sovereignty issue, it's a food security issue, it's a national security issue that's always been usurped by these corporations need to make money. And so when we're at the behest of, of shareholder value in the food system, who really is benefiting apart from those who have the economic freedom to really subsist, to survive, to, to handle climate shock, to handle pandemic shock, et cetera. So what, what lessons do you hope that people can take away um, from the documentary um, and what lasting change can you think can happen both for some of the some of the f- storylines within the documentary and the people featured but also w- what takeaways can someone who doesn't live in native land or uh has been exposed to these ideas perhaps for the first time and have was unaware of this dark history. I don't know how you can be unaware of it, but but for some reason has not really thought long and hard about how food plays a key role in it. What would you like them to think of or, or take away from it? So the concept of food sovereignty means having control and access to the foods that are culturally and spiritually relevant to you. That means a lot of things to a lot of different people, but like, let's just look at it from a neighborhood standpoint. We know that if a pandemic happens or if there's a shock to the supply chain, the people that we tend to rely on are the small stores, the small purveyors of food with whom we have a personal connection and that have a personal connection to us. Like Trader Joe's wouldn't deliver food to my 85-year-old parents in Oakland, California at the beginning of the pandemic. The local natural food store did. Uh, the prices are higher, but they also pay a better wage. You know, they're a, a much more reliable member of the community. They're not going to leave because a shareholder, um, your shareholder sentiment or shareholder value pushes them out of certain communities. They're in those communities because they have kids, they live, they work, they've been there for multiple generations. So the concept of food sovereignty, as it applies to anyone and everyone, is to develop the strongest local food system you can. And that's not just like, are my tomatoes grown within 60 miles? It means are the farm workers who provide those tomatoes from local farms paid well? Are the fast food workers, the grocery store workers paid well? Are there laws that support the ability for small scale producers, even if they're just, even if they just have food stands on the corner Are they protected? Are they given a chance to make a good living? Are food systems not healthy? It's not economically or culturally or spiritually healthy unless and until everybody in it has the same access to opportunities as the consumers do. And we've seen food systems in the West fall apart because the people are treated like machines. We saw that with the pork industry at the beginning of COVID. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there were no protections for, for meatpacking workers. I think it was in Nebraska. They all fell sick and there was a huge shock to the system. And the shock was felt all the way up to the shareholders. And then things <laughs> began happening politically. That happens on a day-to-day level within the food system and it's not gonna get any better. So the, the question is like, are we willing to pay a little bit more for food now if it reduces the externalities, the costs that we're going to have to shoulder as taxpayers in 10 years, in 20 years, in 50 years? You know, even if we don't wanna think about it from purely economical standpoint, standpoints, it feels better in my heart to eat something from somebody I know and have a relationship with than it does to buy an organic tomato from Whole Foods. Like those labels, they don't really guarantee the longevity and the security of our food system. Human connections do. So get to know your grocery store workers, get to know your natural food store workers, make sure your delivery people are treated well, are tipped well. If you use Grubhub, figure out how to make sure the restaurants you're getting the food from are healthy. Make sure that your local food economy is strong because when push comes to shove, that's all you're going to have. Yeah, I love that that's a universal lesson anyone can take away from it um, about the importance of having a resilient local food ecosystem. Um, But the the issue I have with... um, you know, of course, everyone should do as much as they can within their means, obviously, depending on where they live and their socioeconomic conditions. But the bigger challenge is sort of systemic, right? What about people who live uh, in parts of the country, or even parts of New York City, for that matter, where it is easier to just buy the the cheaper off option that's available to them, um, that is sold at an art, it's artificially cheap because the 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 real, true costs are externalized. I mean, it's they aren't factored in. And secondly, they're subsidized. So the food offered for them, the poorer quality, the cheaper food, is the easiest and the most convenient food. And make so for some people, the choice they they don't even have a choice in the matter because all they can afford is what this uh, monolithic system has made available to them wherever they live. So from a choice standpoint, some are put out of the equation completely, right? What about that? Yes and no. The people that you're speaking of, they actually don't have the access that we think they have. Again, again, it's a a specific example. I'm I'm projecting that it's a a low-income individual living in an area where they have limited food choices. As things go... The chances are, like, are that is are that they don't have access to grocery store food. You know, those places like in the Bronx or even in Detroit have been priced out of the food access equation. And in Detroit, for example, they've been forced to use their power as citizens to go to the city and reclaim unused tracts of land to start urban farms. Like for for people that are facing the spear tip of the supply chain. They don't have power as consumers. In fact, they've probably experienced that consumer power taken away, that choice taken away, the access to food taken away, and they have to exert their voice as citizens. Now, for all of us, except for the top one-tenth of one percent, we're all 
potential victims of that supply chain stress. And so it boils down to, and I'm glad you helped me clarify this, it boils down to not consumer power, but using your power within the political system to effect the change you want to. The consumer-based food system is based on dollars and cents. And at some stage, whether it's normal life or the pandemic, that prices everyone out of the food security equation. But if you want to be able to have the food that will really create a community, you have to create that with the community. It's not simply choosing one store over another. It's beginning to rebuild a food system that's as local as possible. A lot of times it doesn't require money. Mm -hmm. It requires organizing. It requires supporting workers that are organizing. It's, it requires supporting urban farming programs, education programs, the reclamation of unused land, so on and so forth. Those have been the things that have enabled communities that have experienced supply chain shock to endure and survive. And now we're seeing decade into this urban farming movement, those communities are thriving nutritionally and health-wise. Yeah. And, you know, the challenge, and I love that you said that, and I'm glad we went here with this conversation, is because often even you, you think about the food system and it's for the longest time the story of sustainable food has been communicated as a story of choice as long as people knew where their food come came from and they were uh they were uh, told about the horrific and unjust ways in which their food was produced people would demand better and this is not a wrong assumption. I mean, knowledge is important. Transparency is uh, can be a catalyst for change for a lot of people, myself included. I mean, I learned about the food system ten years ago, and 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 it, it guided my work for the for a whole decade. But you also then have to acknowledge that as a consumer, your choice can extend. You can then decide how much you want to do, whether it's choosing to buy. Uh, an organic tomato from the farmer's market, assuming you can afford that, versus uh, choosing to um, buy the cheapest variety you can find, supporting a local producer versus buying a product that is shipped far away. Firstly, consumers, it's the, the thing I've learned over the years is that we put so much burden on people to make these decisions when, when we haven't acknowledged that that they're stuck within a system where their decision-making is limited. And the way to break out of it, as you pointed out, is at a local level figuring out ways to to organize. But more importantly, I think at a the bigger issue really it's highlighting is that we are all kind of trapped in this system and nothing really truly changes unless you start focusing on on changing that system. So if you, if you are stuck within this uh, globalized system high efficiency, high production uh, food system, and if what we need to shift to to have any hope to have uh, a sustainable and equitable food system in, in 30 years is a diversified and a decentralized system, we've got to start tackling those policy and systemic issues. And I don't see much willingness at that at the policy level. I see it at the local level happening, but I don't see it much being brought up as a instead what i see happening at the at, at the systemic level is a lot of um people coming out with technology solutions as being the silver bullet that's going to somehow uh 
fix all the problems of the last thousands of years. So any thoughts on how, what can bring about that systemic change? And maybe you already answered it. We just have to do it locally. Well, it's a great set of issues. I mean, it's so much easier for us to think about small impersonal solutions as being the future of food. And this is really, you know, the, the tragedy of the food movement, whether it's, you know, better shipping, whether it's local food, whether it's vertical gardens, whether it's mushrooms, whether it's, you know, seaweed in a capsule, it reduces our own responsibility to be the best people we can be. Now, forgive my French, but it's like, there's a lot of assholes in the food movement who, you know, exercise their power with their credit card uh, by the consumer choices that they make. But that's never created a just equal society. The things that are difficult are making sacrifices. Most of those sacrifices have to do with equity. Most people in the food movement can't see reducing their economic privilege to raise up other people, even philosophically. Like the one thing that would radically change the food system in the, in the United States is to support unions. And in a lot of the, the factories where food is produced, you know, the farming areas with the exception of California, those states are right to work states. They're anti-union states where workers don't have protection. You know, we see these large retailers from Amazon to Walmart resisting the unionizing of workers. As consumers, how many people have gone to a picket line? How many people have supported that kind of change? They don't because it's hard. You know, it's long. It requires you to like not watch football on Sunday. It requires you to maybe bring your kids out to places that are unusual. It requires you to have hard conversations about how much you value other people's right to live as opposed to your own. And I think we're finally at a stage where people are realizing that we don't just have individual responsibility. This is a misnomer of the food movement, that everything rests on the individual. We have responsibility as a society. We have responsibilities as communities. Um, to support one another. It's hard for people to understand that that's the solution that's needed. And I don't know if people will begin supporting that message before the world destroys itself. But time and again, when I've looked at the food system, it's that focus on human beings that has created the most immediate and lasting societal change. It might not lower your prices, in the supermarket, it might bump things up by a penny, but we, we did an analysis, an analysis for food chains that showed that if every farm worker in the US were to have their wages doubled, it would effectively cost a family of four about $60, $62 extra per year a dollar extra per week on produce would double the wages of workers. And that would reduce tax burdens all up and down the, the political landscape. 
it would be putting more money eventually back into the food system. It would create healthier conditions for farm workers. It would stop the supply chain stresses that we've had from spinach to tomatoes even before the pandemic. And isn't that the goal? Yeah, I mean, you you put it really well. I mean, I think it's often people aren't even talking about the same thing when they're talking about fixing the food system. Most people, and this is this is probably getting a little philosophical, but I I, I don't know how you can avoid it because food is connected to literally everything. So uh, I do think often when people are even talking about the problem, they're framing it wrong and they're framing it in a very limited way. Often, and I'm, I've been guilty of this too over the years. I'll acknowledge and I'll be I'll acknowledge my own limitations here. Is that uh, Often you see whether you're learning learning about the horrors of factory farming and the fact that 99% of the meat produced and consumed in this country comes from these, you know, largely four big meat processing companies, where the farm worker, I mean, the factory workers are, are, are treated horrifically, as we've learned even more last year. Obviously, the animals are treated by like like uh, mere commodities. There's nothing good about that system, and it's 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 what's con- contributing to the to the um, to the climate crisis in multiple ways. It's easy to look at that and then say, well, if you could only replace that with something else, voila, we have an answer to our, our problems. But it, it again, it is a bit of a reductionist approach. Not to say that's not a worthy fight. Of course, you should do that. But you do that to the exception of, of focusing on local food economies, and you're going to end up with a, a better problem, but still a problem nonetheless that's not going to bring about any radical change in the food system. Here's here's an example, just so people don't think like I'm sitting on some high horse. Um, I live in Jamaica Hills, Queens. Um, I'm two blocks away from some of the, the poorest communities in New York City. Um, New York City's got these weird dividing lines. So I just happen to live on the right side of one street, um, the south side of that street. That's when a different neighborhood starts. But one of my best friends owns a natural food store that's been in our neighborhood around the corner from me, um, you know, since 1972. The food system, the foodscape in New York has changed radically in the last 50 years, effectively. Like, you know, there's no longer local grocery stores. Um, There's actually very few grocery stores in our area. A lot of natural food stores where you can get access to herbal medicines to different types of teas, medicinal foods have all been wiped out by the the incursion of whole foods into New York City. So this natural food store is the only thing for about in an eight mile radius, only place where people can effectively buy low cost vitamins, where they can buy organic produce. Um, You can buy vitamins obviously online, but you can't buy organic produce online unless you're an Amazon Prime member. And most of the people in this community aren't. So there's stuff offered at very, very low cost um, as, a, as a community service. And, you know, I, I put in, if I'm in town, I put in anywhere between 10 and 35 hours a week there just as a volunteer, because I know this store is essential for me. I don't want to drive 10 miles to a Whole Foods. I don't want to wait in line at Trader Joe's for two hours. This is super convenient. And it provides a level of access to food that communities like mine don't have. And it, it's not gonna it's not gonna persist or exist based on economics. Um, 
stuff is expensive if you can't buy it in warehouse quantities. Stuff is, if it's, is expensive if you're not in charge of the supply chain like Walmart is. You need human beings to go to realize like this is critical for the community at large. I don't have a family. I have the ability, therefore, to sacrifice a few hours a week to ensure that other families have access to this type of food source. And I know that they're going to be sacrificing in other ways that I'll benefit from uh, knowingly or unknowingly. So this is what I mean by like community food system. What's important to you in your food system? What are you willing to do? Because when things disappear, it's too late. It's, it's way too late. It's like, that's why, you know, Trader Joe's and Whole Foods now own New York City. Amazon Prime owns New York City. 20 years ago, there were natural food stores, small vegetable stores, every half a mile from one another. Most of those, except for the ethnic ones um, that have really, really strong local um, consumer bases because they offer things that Whole Foods doesn't, those stores have been wiped out. And that leads to the food access issue that you hinted at, where people can no longer, you know, no longer have choice. It's because we didn't all step up when we did have that choice. That's super relevant and important to think about um, in the context of our food system. I, I want to go back um, to the documentary gather for a bit because I, I don't think we've we've talked enough about it. Um, there was so much about it that I can I can I can talk I can focus on, but I want to touch on Nephi Craig and and the work that he's done. Um, and you follow sort of he's one of the main characters, but there's a few others in the film. But tell me about Nephi and why why did he agree to be part of the film? What is what what has happened since the documentary has come out? Is is I know the documentary was filmed before COVID, but we are now talking in a in a pandemic world. Um, give us a sense of where he's at, and so, as well as some of the other um, key characters that you featured in that documentary. Nephi Craig is one of the main characters in Gather, and um, he was a classically trained French chef. He's only in his early forties now, but he lived the Anthony Bourdain lifestyle. You know, you 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 cook hard, you party hard. And like a lot of people in the restaurant industry, that led to a whole host of substance abuse issues to the point where he kind of lost his reputation. He lost everything he had family-wise and moved back to the reservation, to the White Mountain Apache Reservation in eastern Arizona. It happened that that, that reservation has a ski resort. And a lot of Apaches were cooking in that resort. And Nephi began to realize that a lot of things that he had cooked in French restaurants from salmon to even bison were native indigenous foods. And when they were being prepared by indigenous chefs, even line cooks and stew chefs, you know, there was a different understanding to those ingredients. And it wasn't that they cooked like Native American food. They were cooking for the Western palate, people that were coming to the ski resort from all over Arizona and New Mexico. But it was the first time he felt he could express his nativeness in the kitchen. And as he began to heal from addiction, he realized that reconnecting to food helped him reconnect to identity. You know, the foods that his ancestors ate, no, 
aren't really in the Apache food system, and they represent a time when the Apache were free. They were free from genocide. They were free from colonization, from imperial subjugation. And those foods are directly related to the health of their environment. It requ they require a lot of work. You know, foraging might require a few hours on a weekend to get enough for a few weeks, as opposed to driving to a Costco and loading up for a, a two or three week supply. And they require community. They require a lot of people going out and distributing labor. But that changed his outlook on life and eventually helped him become sober. He eventually had the dream of starting a native cafe on his reservation with high-end preparation that would excite people because, you know, we all watch Food Network. None of us want to eat mush when we can eat things that are plated extraordinarily well. So, you know, he wanted to, to create a series of dishes that didn't necessarily reflect traditional ways that the Apache ate food, but would come from those traditional ingredients that would excite a westernized mind and a westernized palate, but from an Apache standpoint, would give people a lens into the way their ancestors lived and the health and vibrance and power that their ancestors had. And eventually, you know, he sees this dream to fulfillment and that's what we show in, in Gather. I mean, we all love chefs. We all watch so much television where people prepare things and chances are we're never gonna prepare those things. We watch other people cook, we watch other people eat. There's something weirdly human about enjoying other people dealing with food, even food that we can't actually enjoy the way they do on the screen. So we show that in the film and we, I won't give it away, but you know, essentially Nephi opens the restaurant. Um, the restaurant is, was closed for the last 12 months because Eastern Arizona, the White Mountain Apache tribe was one of the hardest hit areas in the continental US by COVID. But, you know, they're going to reopen it in a couple of months. And unlike stores and restaurants that have to pay rent in big cities that have been decimated by COVID, his property is owned by the tribe and there's no pressure. So they're going to open and they're going to be incredibly successful. I don't think just within their community, but I think people are going to travel far and wide in the same way that, like, if you want to eat really, really good regional French cuisine, you have to like drive three hours mm -hmm. from Bordeaux. You have to like, if you're in Italy, you're not only gonna get it in Rome, you might have to drive, you know, three hours from Florence or from Milan to find the, the, the villa that's got the restaurant in it. So if you wanna eat great Apache food, you're gonna have to drive three hours from Scottsdale, but I think it's gonna become a destination. So I'm really excited by Nephi's framing of food sovereignty um, as a pathway to healing from trauma for Native communities, and as a pathway to restore physical, cultural, and spiritual health. Yeah, it brings up so much about what happens. Um, it really made me think about what happens when you strip um, someone's cultural identity, and a lot of it is connected to food. I mean, food isn't just, and I've said this before probably, is that food is connected to everything, Um but it's culture, and it's and especially and I, I and I think that came across to me watching that documentary is that the easiest way you can um, strip someone's culture and identity is take away their food, take away what what they hold dear, what brings them together as a community, and that's that's precisely 
what what the story of colonization of food and colonization of culture has been and it's and even if you look at it as just a reclaiming of that identity um i mean it's maybe not for everyone to pursue that goal but for the it can be tremendously healing for a lot of people to be able to go back to the roots of of what their culture and what their ancestors ate and knew and i think we sometimes um are so focused on the future we we forget to truly acknowledge the past i mean in fact i've been seeing a lot of this lately uh, as as people offer different solutions to how we can fix the problems with our food system ranging from factory farming through down to the impact on um farm workers to the damage that we, that is being done to our topsoil across the country and you, you especially on the farming side you see a lot of people offering solutions um that use the word restorative agriculture and regenerative agriculture and explaining concepts like um uh, uh rotational cropping and agroforestry with no acknowledgement for where all these uh the, the the actual techniques and the science and the origin of these practices came from and i and i and it's been to the extent where it's now presented completely stripped of its its cultural its ancestral origins um and you know some people even go go to the extent of calling it ancestral practices without acknowledging who came up with it as if it was your ancestral practice so i mean i think there's uh, yeah any thoughts on 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 that in terms of what's the the new food movement sort of neo colonialism in some way um well yeah i mean it it all boils down to again the the roots of extractive capitalism where land has value for individual ownership and the the worth of that land is measured by the number of dollars of output per acre i mean that's the way that the us farming system the us land tenureship you know um system is run you don't get subsidies from the us government unless you're able to generate a certain number of dollars per acre and that's created a very individualistic approach to agriculture which again is the antithesis of what we're talking about when we're talking about the community food systems it can't come from individual ownership of land it can't come from the pressures that individuals have to make ends meet from their individual loans to the individuals you know you know desire to to make a certain amount of money to the individual's family size you know it's always been cooperative farms cooperative arrangements that have led to greater wealth not just equality okay i'll give an example chances are if if listeners have eaten a cherry tomato in the winter from whole foods or from trader joes it's come from southern mexico from southern baja from cabo san lucas or even central baja ensenada and it's been grown by a cooperative called the del cabo cooperative and it's a it's a collection of 50 to 100 local farmers who are all growing things for export but they co-own a packing facility they co-own the marketing team um they co-own the supply chain and it created a system where one farmer with 3000 acres doesn't control the supply chain 
50 farmers with 50 to 60 acres each exert as much power as a mega farmer would. At the same time, these farmers are paying people well. They have certain rules and regulations that they need to abide by if they want to remain in the cooperative. Um, not just quality control, but like the human element of things, being good citizens, good members of society. And that is an incredible example of this idea of collective farming. Even the, the Blue Almond Company mm -hmm. in, in California is a good example where you distribute the risk of farming, you know, across multiple people, multiple years, through multiple, you know, financial avenues, the restorative farming movement, the regenerative farming movement, it's all the same old, same old. It's like you put one person into a very difficult situation, they're going to be forced to try to do the best they can to the detriment of other people. It's, it's competition and competition and community don't work when it comes to food. It kind of never has. Yeah, I mean that's such a good point. I mean, you, you it's, it goes back to this issue of you're trying to you're current you're trying to solve problems using the same paradigm that created those problems, and uh, you just you know it's band aid solutions. None of them are truly permanent. Um, I also want to get your take on what do you think is technology's role in shaping what happens in our food system, and I know. Technology again is this pretty broad term. It could mean anything from a a stick to a robot, right? So, but but generally speaking, in terms of some of the recent innovations in in the food industry and what's potential, and again, it's everything from farming to innovations in last mile delivery. You can call that innovation what's happening now with delivery apps. But again, it's just adding more cost to restaurants instead of actually saving them right so every so i'll just say one thing about technology before i'll tee it up for you is that um it, technology isn't good or bad it all comes with pluses and minuses we just don't see it until it's seemingly too late what are your thoughts on the role that technology can play going forward well, look, like I'm, I'm not averse to technology, but it's important for people to realize that the purveyors of technology are the same people that have benefited from the theft of land. Like the VCs, most of, most of which come from really old money, old in terms of American, you know, centuries, not, not millennia. They are literally, that money is literally the root of the problem. Their goal, technology's goal, isn't to solve social problems. It's to make a handful of people rich. Now, if there were technologies being created, distributed, open source that are, that are trying to create systems of equity, equality, 100% for that. But if the technology, no matter how hopeful it is, is going to increase inequality, what's the point? There's, that said, like there's a, there's a lot of small companies out there that are working on giant issues. Now, I'm, I could care less about like, you know, cold storage to be able to ship fish from New Zealand to Seattle. Um, I could care less about that stuff. You know, there obviously is a space for technology, whatever the, the, the driving force is, whether it's capitalism or, 
or social good. I mean, climate change is such a big issue that, you know, we need solutions regardless of whatever my own philosophical bent might be. Um, you know, we need systems that can help the food system understand data mm -hmm. as the climate begins to change radically and drastically. We can't just rely on traditional ancestral localized knowledge of food systems. There have to be ways for farmers to become more efficient, to de-risk themselves from climate issues. I'm all for those types of things, but when it comes to like, you know, more efficient, you know, ways to pack and ship protein, you know, veggie burgers and other plants, other sources of protein other than cattle being able to drive the world. You know, I don't care as much for that. But I think if those hundreds of millions of dollars got put into like local food economies, we wouldn't have the, the political issue of whether veganism is going to reduce like carbon load in the world. Like that wouldn't be an issue. It's like we'd be using topsoil, we'd be growing beans and things that had some local relevance. We'd be, you know, creating other cheap sources of protein other than like subsidized USDA beef. Mm -hmm. we'd, we'd mix up the diet a little bit better. So those individual VC funded solutions, I think are, you know, from a, a long-term solution, they're bogus. Um, but again, you know, not to repeat myself, there are, Climate change is real. Energy issues are real. Um, it's important for us to be able to like look at the short-term reality of broken food systems and stopgap them with technology, but not with the idea that these things are going to save us from ourselves. Yeah, I, I like that last point especially. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you said, but the the idea is that we've got to acknowledge the role that some of these solutions play uh, rather than tell ourselves or tell others or tell your investors that uh, they are the one thing that's going to fix our entire complex interconnected global food system at the moment. And I, and I think acknowledging the role that they play will help us maybe then acknowledge the roles that it doesn't play and then try to real, figure out real solutions that get to the root of the problem, which is again, that we, um, we, we cannot, continue with this approach of uh uh of giant mon you know uh monop i forget the word that you mentioned right in the beginning now but uh that shows uh, my retention capabilities but uh, you said not monopolies but monopsony monopsonies well i just learned a new word today this is amazing um so i do think that that's that that, that paradigm shift needs to happen um, and, and, you know, tech can play a role, but we've also got to be careful about what role it plays and where, and money can play a role, it, an investment can play a role, but we've got to understand where it can have the most amount of impact uh, and do the least amount of harm. There's always going to be some harm. We just have to be able to make those decisions using data too, which is an important point that you brought up. I'm going to close out with one last question. It's It's very forward looking and it's kind of idealistic in many ways, but you know, and, and and there's no perfect right or wrong answer to this. But if you look ahead, if as you said, climate change is a real threat. We're facing its impacts already with uh, extreme weather events and a lot more that's happening across the world. We are in a bit of a race against time, and uh, and that's why people are jumping to the first solution that looks like a nice shiny object. If you you know 
were to envision a, a, a better food system, given the role that technology will end up in inevitably playing, given where the world is now, with the size of our population as compared to where it was even, say, 100 years ago, what does that food system look like? I mean, if you could, if you could redo this whole thing at a highest level, um, and I think we've touched on it throughout the course of this conversation, but how would you kind of summarize what that ideal food system would look like that balances sustainability, um, equity to a certain extent, and, and being resilient enough to deal with the, the impacts of climate change as it, as it starts to affect us on a, on a monthly basis? You know, I think there are solutions already out there, like a number of urban centers, Austin, LA, New York have food policy councils, which are looking at these big issues and how they affect the local food economy, from consumers to school systems to local neighborhoods. And they're trying to create a more equitable, more choice-based um, local system. Far few, far, far too few cities have the sorts of sorts of resources or the political will to to put towards this. But red and blue districts have had incredibly beneficial outcomes from organizing this way. Because what ends up happening is that local food systems get credit from buying from local farms. Those local food systems, the bigger purchasers, generally tend to be in really blue areas. Um, those local farms generally tend to be in really red areas. And so the supply chain really knows no kind of social politics and can be benefited from just an understanding of where the different layers are and what people need. It, it's shocking that there's no National Food Policy Council in the U.S., that there's no secretary of food that really helps local communities, states as well, understand how to better use the supply chain for their food systems. Um, I think that's an immediate solution. It's been in operation in a number of places for 10 years or more. It works. It really brings all the stakeholders together to look at common solutions. The more localized those sorts of discussions can be, and the more power that people gain collectively over the supply chain, the better everything's going to be. That's super simple. And that's, again, it's exerting our power as citizens, um, as organizers, uh, as opposed to just consumers. I love that. Well, Sanjay, this has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate your time today. And for all the insights about everything from food supply chains to its impact on, most importantly, its impact on people to its impact on the planet, Thanks for your time today. I had a great time. Thanks, Neil. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Neil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co tp.co. Thank you for listening.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.